We are finishing our study of the seven churches of Revelation this week with Laodicea, the lukewarm church. Really inspiring, encouraging church to end on. <laughs> Not so much, but it'll be, it'll be good. Kind of warm us up to what this letter, some of what this letter has in it. I've got a couple questions for you. How do you like your beverages, uh, cold or hot? Probably depends, right? And most of us are like, well, it depends on the, the weather, it depends on my mood, it depends on the time of day. How about coffee, though? Who prefers iced coffee? Few. Who prefers hot coffee? That kind of makes sense in this demographic. A study found that 40% of Gen Z like cold coffee, but 94% of baby boomers like hot coffee. And what's happening, though, is slowly iced coffee is becoming, is taking over more and becoming more and more popular. <clears throat> but what about tea? Who likes their tea? Iced tea. Okay. All right. Hot tea. A lot more split there. It's kind of surprising. I was surprised. I thought more people would like hot tea here. They found uh, in 2016, one of the studies found that hot tea still enjoyed a slight lead in popularity over iced tea. I think that probably varies pretty big depending on where you are in the country. I grew up in the South, so I know how big a deal iced tea is down there, if you want to call it tea. More like tea-infused sugar water. But uh, <clears throat> what about knocking at your door? How many of you, when you go to knock at somebody's door, you're, you're loud? You're like, you give it. Yeah, I know it's a... All right, how, how many of you are soft, gentle? Okay. <clears throat> people like different things. And when people come to your door and knock, how many of you like, you want to be able to hear it? You want a nice, solid, loud knock? How many of you would say that? Okay. And how many of you want somebody to just tap gently and where you barely hear it? All right. And then some, some would say, don't touch my door. <laughs> uh, um, <clears throat> Todd, Avery, I forgot to tell you, I was going to tell this story. But he, he's one of our deacons here. He works for FedEx. And he likes to give a nice, solid, loud knock. A few of them. And he did that one day when he was delivering packages. And uh, he started hearing some rumbling inside. And a guy came to the door. And he pretty quickly figured out this was an Oregon football player. Because he was a big old dude. And uh, it looked like he had just woken up. And he was like, man, you knock, you knock loud, man. And uh, Todd was like, well, I want to make sure you know I'm here. <laughs> you know. Uh, people like different things when it comes to uh, their, the temperature of their beverages or how they knock at the door. And as we study Laodicea today, Jesus described this church as lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, which was a problem. And he told them that he was standing at their door and knocking. And we're going to dig in to see what that's all about. Uh, first, let's ask God... We pray that you would be with us. I thank you so much for this series that we've been able to go through. And it's been a blessing for me. I hope that it's been a blessing for the church. And as we finish it today, God, I, I pray that you would just have your way with, with the message. Have your way with our hearts, with our lives. Whatever you want to do, Lord, there, there's always lots of information that we need. We can learn uh, we can learn mistakes not to make. We can learn from mistakes, realize the mistakes that we've made that we didn't even know before. We can um, learn how 
better to follow you as a church, as an individual, how, how to pray. There's all kinds of things, but God, we, we hope that uh, you will just continue to strengthen our church. And I ask that this would be a part of that, that this message would have a positive influence on everybody here today in helping us to become more like Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So we are in chapter 3 of Revelation. We're starting in verse 14 today. It says, Into the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So Jesus here introduces himself as the Amen, the faithful and true witness. And this corresponds really well with 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Which says, as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus, Timothy, and I, did not become yes and no. On the contrary, in him it is always yes. For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, through him we also say amen to the glory of God. So Jesus is reminding this church that he is the one who can be trusted. He's the one who never lets anyone down, who always accomplishes what he sets out to do, which is what Paul is talking about here in Corinthians. And he's also the beginning of creation. Now, don't misunderstand that to think that Jesus is saying that he is a created being himself. It's exactly the opposite. He's pointing out that he is the creator. Some translations use the word originator here in this verse. And we've already seen that Jesus earlier in other letters identified himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And Paul, when he wrote the letter to Colossians, addressed a heresy about this because there were already people who were trying to teach that Jesus was a created being. And Paul goes in and makes it clear, no, everything that was made was made for him and through him. And so it would not be surprising that Jesus might address that heresy as he introduces himself because Laodicea was really close right next to Colossae. And we'll actually talk about their relationship a little bit more later. So it's very likely that that same heresy that Paul had to deal with had crept into this church as well. So it's not uh, surprising that Jesus might introduce himself this way. And he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. It's a tough, tough statement that Jesus makes. And it's also a very well-known statement. A lot of Christians are familiar with this. And I think more often than not, unfortunately, I think it's been misunderstood and probably misused by myself included, uh, though not in a really dangerous way, thankfully. Uh, even when we, mit, when we interpret this potentially the wrong way, it's still, in general, kind of true. But when you first read it, it sounds like Jesus is saying that he would rather they either be completely against him or passionately for him. And under that interpretation, cold and hot would be labeled as levels of spiritual zeal, right? And so, some people rightfully beg the question, well, why would Jesus tell a church that he would rather they adamantly oppose him? That doesn't make a lot of sense. And that's true. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But 
while I do not believe that the hot cold are about their level of passion, I do think I have an explanation as to why Jesus would say that, if that's what he meant. And that would be that the level of condemnation and judgment could be worse for a lukewarm Christian, which in that case we would have to interpret as not really a Christian at all, but in fact a false convert. And so he would be saying that it's actually worse, the level of condemnation and guilt and judgment is worse for that false convert sitting in church than for someone who just doesn't profess to know Jesus at all, which I think makes sense. If you understand, if you're catching what I'm dropping. So Jesus would be saying like, it's better for you to be cold, adamantly opposed to me. Of course, it's best if you're hot, if you're following me wholeheartedly, passionately with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But it's better to be cold than to be lukewarm. Why? Because professing to follow me, but not being truly repentant, truly regenerate, truly following me, that's just constantly heaping more and more judgment on yourself. It's better to just not profess to know me at all than to take on my name and run it through the mud. I picture Jesus saying, I hate it when people reject me, of course. But I hate it even more when they reject me but pretend not to. And I think that's an entirely plausible explanation as to why Jesus would be saying it in that way, where cold and hot are about their passion, their zeal. I think there are some good reasons from Scripture to believe that the the worst punishment is reserved for those who were sitting in churches their whole life, but never truly followed Christ. But I don't think that's what he means. <laughs> that is my explanation for if, if we did interpret it that way, but I don't think that's the best interpretation. Historical context is really helpful in this letter, even more, I think, than in the others that we've been reading Laodicea was known for a few big things, and we'll, we'll talk about them all later, and you'll see how they all connect to what Jesus is saying to this church. But one of the things about this city is that it didn't have a good source of drinking water. So they had to pipe in water from two neighboring cities, Hierapolis to the north and Colossae to the east. And Hierapolis was known for their hot springs. So the water that was coming from there was coming from hot springs and on its way to Laodicea was cooling down to lukewarm temperature. And Colossae was known for their pure, cold, refreshing water. And on its way to Laodicea, it warmed up to lukewarm temperature. So Laodicea was known for having terrible drinking water that everybody hated. And some people even said, even said that it might have been contaminated and had things in it that would cause people to vomit. Now, whether or not it had anything dangerous in it that would make people sick, there's also this reality that lukewarm water is simply off-putting to most people. I know there's some out there who like their water lukewarm, some of you weirdos, but you're the exception, all right? If you want to drink water like Jesus, it's hot or cold, all right? Same thing with tea or coffee. I don't see a lot of coffee shops making bank on the lukewarm special. <laughs> Iced or hot, that's where the money is. <clears throat> and what, hot water has its own advantages, right? Like we, we're not encouraged to go clean, wash our hands and clean things with lukewarm or cold water. 
hot water serves its purpose in cleaning and it has medicinal advantages. And what do you do whenever you want to make sure the water you're drinking is safe? You boil it. And on the other side, cold water has its advantages. Probably the most pronounced being that it is refreshing. Nobody is out there working in the hot sun, sweating through their clothes, and really yearning for a cup of lukewarm water, or hot water for that matter. And what do you do when you get an injury and you've got inflammation? You put an ice pack on that thing. And in some cases, the doctor prescribes you to rotate between heat and ice. But no doctor is telling you to go get a thawed-out ice pack and put it on your ankle. Hot water is useful. Cold water is useful. And lukewarm water, in this analogy here, is useless. Jesus is saying, this church is, under the conditions that they are in right now, they are useless. He's like, you're nauseating. You're disgusting to me. I want to spit you out of my mouth. And this church, as others have rightfully put it, was not providing refreshment for the spiritually thirsty or healing for the spiritually sick. Both of which a church should provide. I think it's obviously best when a church has both. But we can picture different kinds of churches in our minds. You know, there are some out there that focus much of their efforts, most of their efforts each week on building people up, you know, and then there's others that seem to focus much of their efforts on challenging and convicting people. Now, I think it's obviously best when a church does both because you need both, just like you need hot water and cold water in different scenarios. But Jesus is like, gosh, I would rather that you just be one or the other than what you are. I would rather you just refresh people or just convict people, but you just disappoint. You don't do anything for them. Sweet food is good. Spicy food is good, but you're bland. And I don't want you in my mouth. And you shouldn't be able to come here and leave today. If on your end, on your end, that you are truly Humble and desire to come and to learn and to grow and to allow the Holy Spirit to work in your heart and, and do what he needs to do. If that is your mentality, when you come here, you should not be able to leave and say, I wasn't encouraged or challenged or convicted or inspired. Nothing happened. If that's what's happening in, in a church, then it's like we've we're like the salt that lost its saltiness that Jesus talks about in Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. What good is a group of people that call themselves a church but have lost their saltiness? instead are poor and blind. As Jesus describes them in verse 17, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Maybe you remember that Smyrna was a poor church that Jesus called rich. 
And Laodicea is a rich church that Jesus calls poor. One had all they could ever ask for in materials, and the other had all they could ever ask for in persecution. Now, when they say they are rich, some people theorize, well, maybe they mean they're spiritually rich. I don't think that's the case here, though they might mean both, because oftentimes when churches fall for the false prosperity gospel, the two are conjoined twins. They go together. People think that they must be in a good place spiritually if they're in a good place financially. And then if they start to struggle financially, they're like, oh, something must be wrong spiritually. And so this church very well may have thought that their material wealth was a blessing from God. And they say that they are rich and they've prospered. And what mentality does that lead them into? I need nothing. They don't need anything. That's why Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, did he say that because he makes it harder for rich people to get into heaven? No. Does he say it because he's provided some easier route for the poor people? No, not at all. It's the same path. It's the same road. But the difference is that a rich person has a harder time recognizing that the road they're on is leading them to destruction. You know, because rich people have drivers and they don't know what road they're on anyway. They're too busy in the back seat doing business. And it's the poor people that are walking and riding their bikes and driving themselves around. I mean, that's a bit of a joke, but it is the reality that worldly security is a barrier to faith. It just is. It pushes it away. It fights against faith at every turn. Who needs to pray for your daily bread when the pantry's full and the basement is stocked up with all kinds of stuff For the apocalypse. Who needs to trust God for the medical bills when you own the hospital? Who needs to seek God's wisdom for when to move or where to move and and which house to buy or, or rent if you can pick any house in any neighborhood? Who needs anything at all from God when you have everything from the world? Money keeps you busy, it keeps you distracted from the human struggle that often leads people to humility and to Christ because it keeps you busy, not thinking about sin, not thinking about eternity. Of course, rich people sometimes start to realize like, I think all this might be vain. But then there's also the problem that even when they start asking questions, their wealth traps them in this world where they don't find the answers and no one's pointing them in the right direction. So it's hard It's not impossible, but it is difficult for them to find Christ. As Jesus said in Matthew 19, 23 through 26, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard that, they were greatly astonished, saying, Well, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So it is possible for rich people to find the way, but it is difficult. More difficult than 
those others who are kind of already at the bottom in the world because life has already humbled them. And it takes humility to follow Christ. And that's the biggest barrier restriction for a rich person because the security keeps you proud. It keeps you feeling like you're safe. It gives you this false sense of security. So this church had given in to the temptation that Jesus used on Satan. And you know that if, if Satan, or that Satan used on Jesus, you know that whatever Satan picks to try to get Jesus with, he's coming with his best stuff, right? And what did he say? If you will bow down and follow me, what will I give you? I'll, I'll give you the world. And so Jesus pushes back against this view that this church had of themselves and says, no, you're not rich. You're pitiable, you're wretched, you're poor, blind, and naked. Remember Sardis, Jesus didn't really have anything good to say about that church. Although he did say, but there are a few of you who are true. He doesn't have anything, any glimmer, any glimpse of anything good to say about this church. Michael Wilcox said the only good thing in Laodicea is the church's thoroughly good opinion of herself. And that's false. They're like the poor American idol auditioner who thinks they're going to become the next Carrie Underwood but doesn't realize that they sound like a goat and a parrot had a baby. It's a sad state to be in, right? To, to be looking down on everyone else and not realizing that you're the one who should be pitied. To, to have a credit limit of 250000 and not realize the bank is empty. To walk around with the confidence of someone with 20-20 vision and not even know that you're blind. Or like a lot of people's dreams, to get to school and not realize that you forgot to put clothes on. But the question is, when Jesus comes along and tells you the card has been declined, there's no funds in the account, he tells you you're blind, you're about to walk off a cliff, stop. Hey, you're naked and you're embarrassing yourself. What are we going to do? Are we going to go into denial and are we going to argue with him? Or are we going to listen to his counsel? And he counseled this church. He said, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I said Laodicea was known for a few things. One of them was their money. All right? they, they had so much of it that at one point in history, an earthquake came and, and destroyed the city, and they rebuilt it on their own. They didn't even need help from Rome. But another thing that they were known for was their fine black wool. And also they, for their, they were kind of the pioneers in ophthalmology. So eye, eye care. They were famous for their eye salve. And Jesus comes along and says, I know what you, you guys are known for all these things. That's not what you need. You need my products. You need gold that's been refined by fire, which is spiritual wealth that's been tested and is guaranteed to last for eternity. You need white clothes, which is the righteousness that Christ offers for those who will get to walk in him in perfection because they've been forgiven and cleansed of their sins. You need salve for your eyes so that you can see things as they really are and let go of the worldly perspectives that you've been clinging to. 
And then he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Jesus had beaten this church to a pulp in this letter. He didn't have anything good to say about it. And he says, you're nauseating. I want, to, I want to spit you out of my mouth. You're pitiable, wretched, poor, blind, naked. So I, I think it might have been a bit of a surprise and maybe a relief when they get to this part and Jesus actually declares, I still love you. That's what he's doing. This is his love. He's showing his love. He's speaking the truth in love. And I know that we often think that speaking the truth in love means that we're always going to be, be really soft and, and gentle. And we're going to refrain from using any uh, harsh words or stern language. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. Now, I get we, especially as sinful human beings, we have to be especially careful. But speaking the truth in love doesn't always look like a, a therapy session. Sometimes it looks like this letter. And this church needs to appreciate the fact that Jesus cared enough to say something. It's like when somebody in your family keeps making destructive choices. And and every time they do it, you you try to steer them in the other direction. And you try to stand in the way and say, no, don't do this. Turn around. But it's just a fight, right? And so you argue. But eventually, you know something has changed when when that just stops and you give up. And then the next time they come and they declare, here's what I'm going to do. And you're like... Whatever, I don't care. But Jesus reproves and disciplines those he loves. And he still loves this church. Even though they were awful. They were horrible. But that is a reality that we can't deny, that we cannot forget. Jesus loves horrible churches. He does. And you know what that means? It means he loves horrible people because those are what make horrible churches. And that is comforting in some ways and challenging in others. It's comforting if you ever find yourself in that position, being what would be described as a lukewarm, poor, blind, naked. Jesus is telling you the same thing this morning. I love you, but be zealous and repent. But it's also challenging because especially for me, I get kind of tired of horrible churches. They can kind of wear you down. And I don't think our church is like Laodicea, uh, though there is comfort here that if we were like that or if we became like that, Jesus could still turn us around. But I don't think that's where we are, but I do think that there are a lot of churches around us that are. And it's a struggle sometimes to love them the way that Jesus does. I do want them to repent and I would love to see them turn around. But I think my mentality, my instinct would often be like, just give up, like close the doors and walk away, which is not what Jesus does. Because sometimes what we do is we kick Jesus out of the church and we shut the door. And this is a good reminder. Well, Let Jesus do what he needs to do, and we just keep praying for repentance. Because what does Jesus do to a church, at least a so-called church, that kicks him out and shuts the door? Well, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Apparently, Jesus wasn't in this church. He was on the outside. The door was shut. And some people interpret this in different ways in the sense that was this a true church or was it not? Some think that this was a a church that was full of real believers, but they had backslidden. And so the, in that sense, Jesus knocking at the door was a call not to salvation, but to rededication. And the argument would be like, well, why would Jesus even call it a church at all? And that's not a bad point, but we know, I think it was pretty clear in the letter to Sardis that they were mostly unbelievers, except there were a few that were true. And Maybe there were a few or maybe just one in this church that was true and that didn't get addressed directly in the letter. I don't know. When I read the letter, it sounds more like a call to salvation, the way he describes them. Useless, pitiable, wretched, poor, blind, naked. It doesn't sound like he's describing people who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. But maybe there were some believers in their midst, or maybe he knew that there were some who would listen to his call and would open the door and repent. And so he knew that, no, there, there are people who are going to be with me in eternity. So maybe it hadn't happened yet for them, but Jesus knew that there were believers ultimately in this church. I don't know. Either way, he's standing at the door knocking. He's calling them to repentance, whether it be to justification or to sanctification, to salvation or rededication. If they open the door, they're not going to be rejected. And Christians under Roman rule, under the Roman Empire, would have been used to something very different. You see, Rome wanted to come to your door, knock it down, and take your food. But Jesus wants to come to your door, knock at it with a meal in his hand that he wants to share with you if you'll open it up. And this ties well with the open doors that we talked about last week. They're not the same because that was an open door that Jesus placed before that church that they needed to walk through. And this is a closed door that they need to open so he can walk through. But we don't need to push the analogy too far, overanalyze it. I think it's pretty simple. Jesus wants in, but he's not going to force his way. He wants into your heart, but he's not going to go in against your wishes. If that's how he wanted to do it, then there would not need to be a call to repent at all. There would just be him busting through the door. But he stands at the door and knocks. And this is true whether we need a fresh repentance or a first-time repentance. And if we let him in, he has everything that we need. He tells them to go buy these things. You need to buy from me this gold and, and these clothes and this ointment. Well, how do you buy something if you're broke? That's a problem, right? And I know what you're thinking, but it's not going to work. There are no spiritual credit cards. But the thing is, they don't need to start working and earning up and saving so that they can actually buy these things from him. Jesus has them with him. All they need to do is open the door and let him in. He makes it so simple. But we have to let the Holy Spirit do his job of bringing us to humility so that we will repent and open that door. And he finishes by saying, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. 
We saw earlier in this series how believers would one day be able to reign with Christ, not in a way that usurps his role, but welcome to sit beside our Savior and our King. I picture it like a dad who looks at his kid and he's like, you want to you wanna drive? You know, but then they just put him on his lap, right? And they're driving. But this church, they had a huge problem. They wanted all the wrong things. Their hope and their security were in all the wrong places. They wanted the good life, but they didn't understand what makes life good. And that is a huge problem. And what does make life good? If I ask you that question, if someone came up to you and said, hey, what would make your life better? I want you to think about how you would answer that. And I want you to think about how you would actually answer it if it was an anonymous online survey or someone on the street, not your pastor asking you in church. What would you really say to that question? What gets you excited You're thinking, oh, life is getting better. What is it that causes that excitement in you? James Hamilton asked the question this way. When you sense a hope and anticipation that your life is about to get better, what provokes that hope? Is it the thought of having more money? Or is it the thought of having more of Jesus? What is going to make your life better? What's going to improve your life more? Being able to provide your children with truth and righteousness and love and gentleness or being able to pay for their college? What's going to make your marriage happier? Having a bunch of toys that you can take out and play with on the weekends or having built up More and more trust in one another's character because you've watched each other walk in in forgiveness and repentance and holiness as you grow in Christ. Would you rather be able to predict the stock market? It'd be pretty handy. Or have a better understanding of God's word. What gets you more excited? Your inheritance? Here? Or your inheritance in heaven? Those are questions that we have to ask. Danny Aiken said it this way. Sometimes like Laodicea, we have everything in our life and in our church except the Lord Jesus. But may it not be so for us. And if you're here today, whether you need a fresh repentance or a first Repentance. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And I know we get this image of Jesus. We have this picture of him standing outside the door and he's like. And we sing the songs softly and tenderly. Jesus is calling. Did you read this letter? I don't know about you, but this doesn't look like softly and tenderly Jesus calling. He's not on the other side of the door, tapping on the door, hoping that maybe you'll hear him, but he won't wake up the baby. He is banging on the door over and over and over. And he's not just banging. He says, if anyone hears my voice, so he's banging and he's yelling, let me in, wake up. 
I know you're blind. I know you're naked. I've got clothes. I've got ointment for your eyes. I've got a meal. Let me in and we'll eat together. Praise God that he's not calling softly and tenderly. If you're standing in the street and you're about to get pummeled by a bus, do you want somebody calling at you softly and tenderly? Hey, there's a bus coming. Oh, we want somebody doing what Jesus does for us and what we need to do for the world. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen to what he says. Ephesus, the forgetful church, you lost your first love. Repent, or I'm going to remove your lampstand from his place. Pergamum, the compromising church, repent, or I'm going to come to war with you with my sword. Thyatira, the tolerant church, repent or I'm going to throw you into great tribulation and kill you. Sardis, the dead church, repent or I'm going to come like a thief. Laodicea, the lukewarm church, repent or I'm going to stay outside. But to those who endure, to those who repent, to those who conquer, what does he say? You'll get to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. You'll get to wear the crown of life. You'll never be hurt by the second death. You'll eat the hidden manna and receive a stone with a new name. You'll be given authority to sit beside Christ and rule with him, the morning star, and to walk with him in white garments and never have your name blotted from the book of life. You'll get to be acknowledged by Jesus before the Father. You're a pillar in the temple of God, never to be removed. You'll be sealed with the Father's name, the Son's name, the city's name, and you get to sit on the throne with Jesus. So be zealous. Repent. Endure and conquer.